Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young. How a Cold War trove of baby teeth illuminates the dangers of our nuclear world. What we found was staggering. We found that people who had died of cancer have more than double the strontium-90 level in their teeth than healthy people. Also, scientists are only now beginning to understand the biological richness of Southeast Asia. And Mekong should now be synonymous with Amazon, with Borneo, with Congo. It conjures up images of wild places, and and I tell you, it doesn't get much wilder than this. But now that wildlife is threatened by hydropower. Plus, (coughs) the math behind some movie monsters. We'll have those stories and more this week on Living on Earth, so stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Nuclear radiation can cause cancer. And when America stopped testing nuclear bombs in the atmosphere in 1963, research showed a decline in the levels of dangerous fallout in people. Now scientists at the Radiation and Public Health Project have published studies that apply the methods of that research to cancer rates of people living near nuclear power plants, with some startling results. With me now is Joseph Mangano. He's an epidemiologist and the executive director of this project. Uh, Mr. Mangano, uh, welcome to Living on Earth. Hi, how are you? I read that you recently acquired some 85,000 baby teeth from an old World War II gunnery range in St. Louis. What's the story behind how you got those teeth, and, and what do baby teeth have to do anyway with your research? To tell you how we acquire them, I have to go back in history a bit to 1958, a time when the... United States and Soviet Union were engaged in a nuclear arms race. A lot of people were very worried about not just nuclear war, but about the fallout from the bomb test. And a group of citizens and scientists in St. Louis conceived the baby tooth study, in which they collected 320,000 baby teeth. The purpose was to measure radioactive strontium-90 in baby teeth. And our group in the late 90s began the same kind of tooth study near nuclear reactors in the U.S. And one day, I got a phone call from one of the faculty there, and he said, Joe, we we were out at a storage area, and we found 85,000 baby teeth left over. This is a, a gold mine for researchers. So what did you do with it? One thing that the original... Washington University study did not do in the 60s was look at the question, what did atomic bomb tests do to people? How many people got cancer from bomb test fallout? So we took 6,000 teeth, males from St. Louis who were born in 1959, 60, and 61, who donated an incisor tooth and were not breastfed. And we did two things. First of all, we wrote health surveys to people who we found a current address for. And second, we asked the Missouri Health Department to search their death records over the last 30 years. And out of all that, we came up with 100 tooth donors who have had cancer by age 50. We tested them in a laboratory, 
for the same strontium-90. We also tested 200 teeth of healthy people. And what we found was staggering. We found that people who had died of cancer have more than double the strontium-90 level in their teeth from fall than healthy people. How does strontium-90 enter the body, and how does it affect the body? That's a good question. Let's just take it from the beginning. An atomic bomb explodes above the desert in Nevada. Many, many Americans remember the massive fallout clouds. They look like big mushroom clouds. Within that cloud are tiny metal particles of more than 100 different radioactive chemicals, strontium-90 being one. The cloud is then carried by prevailing winds. And the fallout returned to Earth through precipitation and entered human bodies through the food chain. It rained into municipal water supplies, into pastures where cows graze. The strontium is chemically similar to calcium, and the body thinks it's calcium. So when you drink a glass of milk with strontium-90 in it, it goes right to the stomach. It very quickly goes into the bloodstream and just as quickly attaches to bone and to teeth, which is just what calcium does, only calcium is healthy for the body. Strontium-90 is destructive. It's especially harmful because it attaches to bone, but it penetrates into the bone marrow. And in the bone marrow, the red and white blood cells that are the basis of the human immune system, the human immune response, are formed, causing not just bone cancer or blood cancers, but essentially uh, all cancers and even all immune diseases. It, It is a deadly chemical. Joseph Mangano, I want to turn now from radiation exposure from uh, nuclear bomb testing to the matter of nuclear power. Your organization has a project you call the Tooth Fairy Project, where you look at radiation hazards from nuclear power plants. What have you found from this research so far? We found that close to nuclear plants, the levels of strontium-90 are considerably higher than areas far away. Number two, we found that levels are going up. Since the late 1980s, they've gone up about 50% as nuclear plants get older and are corroding more and emitting more radiation. And number three, we found the link with childhood cancer. We found that in counties closest to nuclear plants in New York and New Jersey, when strontium-90 teeth went up, childhood cancer went up. When strontium-90 went down, childhood cancer went down. What tests have you conducted that show the effects of before and after a nuclear power plant closes? We've done two studies which looked at eight nuclear plants in the United States that were shut down permanently during the 1980s and the 1990s. And we found that in the first two years after nuclear reactors shut, there was a very sharp plunge in the rate of infants that died, in the rate of children born with birth defects, and in the rate of children diagnosed with cancer. Uh, When you say the rates plunged, what exactly are you talking about? Typically, childhood cancer rates go up slowly by, say, 1% a year. We found in the first two years a decline of 25%. If you want to reduce childhood cancer near nuclear plants, uh, according to our research, and of course it needs to be followed up, but a quarter of them can be eliminated simply by closing the nuclear plant. Joseph Mangano is an epidemiologist and the executive director of the Radiation and Public Health Project in New York. Thank you so much, sir. Oh, thank you. The Radiation Health Effects Study is one attempt to uncover a hidden price of our energy choices. Economists call these externalities, the public health and environmental costs that do not show up in our energy bills. But we do pay for them eventually, one way or another. 
National Academy of Sciences National Research Council has put a number on those hidden energy costs, and it's a big one. Dan Greenbaum was on the Academy's study panel. He researches air pollution impacts as president of the Health Effects Institute. Mr. Greenbaum, what price tag did the National Academies come up with? We estimated that just for the costs related to the continuing air pollution from power plants and traffic and heating our homes, uh, that we're looking at over $120 billion of health and other damages in the year 2005. Just for one year? For one year. Now, where does that come from? What, what, what is costing us that? Well, we look primarily at uh, emissions of nitrogen oxide, sulfur dioxide, uh, and also the pollutants that cause ozone smog. And the biggest part of the estimates of our damage has to do with exposure to that particulate matter, which has been shown now in health studies to cause premature mortality. Roughly speaking, we estimated that the current levels of pollution from those sources cause between 18,000 and 20,000 deaths a year. Some uh, would call our estimates an underestimate of these costs. And uh, what are the biggest offenders here? Where do we see uh, the bulk of these costs? Well, I think there were two major components of the $120 billion. One of those was coal-fired power plants. The other key place is transportation, uh, cars and trucks. We looked at 406 power plants, which is almost every coal-fired power plant in the country, and about 50% of those uh, were responsible for only 12% of the damage. So they are newer, they're cleaner, they've been better controlled, but uh, about 10% of them uh, were responsible for 43% of the damage. So uh, it's a very concentrated uh, problem in many respects. So when it came to exposing the hidden costs of our electricity... Mostly it was about coal and mostly about old coal. That's correct. We're talking about older power plants being the biggest contributor to the damages that we estimated. And by far, coal was the biggest single contributor to those damages. So uh, coal, transportation, what about other sources of fuel that we use to generate our electricity? Were there any that stood out as uh, not having so much hidden cost? Well, we looked at most of the other ones. Electricity coming from natural gas uh, did have some damage, but natural gas is much cleaner in the way it's burned. The plants are generally newer, uh, and we were we estimated about a billion dollars a year out of the 120 came from the natural gas plants. We also looked at nuclear plants and at uh, wind and solar. In the case of nuclear, there were very, very few external effects of the sort that we were looking at. And the panel thought that the probability of an accident, which is the thing that many people worry about, is so low um, that per kilowatt hour of electricity generated that the external effects wouldn't be as great. Wind and solar, similarly, very few effects that we saw. Well, you sure did a a thorough job here. However, there are some things you you didn't take into account here. Uh, You didn't really try to put a price tag on the potential uh, climate change costs or the costs of greenhouse gas emissions. We could not pick a single number to make that estimate. There are a number of very detailed models that have been done to try and estimate these. It's difficult to do because you're talking about effects that are occurring pretty far in the future. And what we did is we found a range of between dollar per ton of carbon dioxide and $100 per ton of carbon dioxide emissions. That's a pretty big range. A very big range. And what you see is for like coal and transportation that the damages, uh, if $30 per ton was the right number, um, the the damages would be about equal to the ones that we estimated for non-climate damages. 
So there'll be double the cost of what we're already looking at. From, right. We from didn't coal, make that example. choice, but uh-huh. if if right. that was the right choice for these numbers, it mm-hmm. would it would result in a doubling of the of the damage costs. But in all likelihood, the fuels that would carry the highest carbon costs are by and large the same ones that uh, have the uh, the large costs from the the traditional, the conventional pollutants. That's correct. There are a lot of potential co-benefits of of Mm -hmm. controlling emissions from power plants, for example, for both climate change and pollution. What other things are not included in here? In other words, what hidden costs remain hidden despite your good efforts? Well, we couldn't fully quantify the effects on ecosystems, uh, the effects of biofuels on water pollution, for example, the effects of some hazardous air pollutants such as mercury or lead. And there are also a set of uh, external costs relating to uh, national security, uh, grid congestion on the electricity grid, and possible other things. So uh, what, what are the major takeaway lessons from all this? Well, we've made a lot of progress on reducing conventional pollution, but this report tells us we have a lot of unfinished business, room still to move to get further reductions to the tune of at least $120 billion, although our estimate of those extra damages to health and the environment that are still happening is probably conservative because we did not include climate change effects, effects on ecosystems and others. Dan Greenbaum with Health Effects Institute, thanks for your time. I'm really glad to be here. You can read both that study and results from the Radiation and Public Health Project at our website, LOE.org. And just ahead, a new program to green America's homes by greening homeowners' pocketbooks. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Green housing is getting some greenbacks. Vice President Joe Biden recently rolled out a federal plan designed to cut red tape and provide grants called Recovery Through Retrofit. He says it could cut 160 million tons of global warming gases every year by promoting energy-efficient homes. You will save families a combined $21 billion annually in their energy bills if we do this the right way, while lessening our demand for foreign oil and preserving the environment to leave our children and grandchildren something closer to what we inherited. Not bad for a day's work if we can get all this done. There's a lot of attention now on how to put green housing within reach without putting households in the red. And that's our focus for this part of the program today. We'll hear about a big money investment in greening low-income housing and explore ideas for financing energy-efficient homes. And we start with a visit by you, Jeff, with a pioneering homeowner who says green living can be more affordable and accessible. Yeah, Dr. Keith Collins, a retired physician, brought together top designers and architects to help him build what he calls the Bright Built Barn. Dr. Collins said to look for the tight little house with a south-facing peaked roof on a hill, so I hit the road to mid-coast Maine. Hello there. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to Maine. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming up and uh, love to show you Bright Built Barn. And it's a beautiful sunny day and we're making lots of electricity. Dr. Collins has solar power in his place and many of the things you'd expect from energy efficient design. Double thick insulated walls, triple paned windows and obsessive weatherproofing. But it also has something you might not expect, charm. Lots of natural light, pretty pine floors, and exposed spruce beams reaching up to a high vaulted ceiling. 
you know, some people think that to go green, we should wear, uh, you know, burlap bags and eat rocks. And I'm just not into suffering. You know, I think that if we uh, if we put our minds to it, we ought to be able to live very well as well as uh, protect the planet. Let's take a walk in here and talk about your, your lighting, because I know that's uh, another area where we tend to use a lot of energy. If you look over here, you mm-hmm. see these lights are what are called LED lights. They're light-emitting diodes. Uh-huh. They're basically uh, little computer chips that give off light. Each of these fixtures is using uh, 5 watts and giving off the same amount of light as a 75-watt incandescent bulb. So there's a 15 times more energy efficient. We climb above the movable birch paneled walls to the loft for a look at the solar system. 30 photovoltaic panels provide electricity and solar thermal tubes heat water, which also heats the house. Dr. Collins likes the medical metaphor. He calls this the heart of the house. And in the corner is the brain, a metal box with a digital display. This is what I call my report card. Here it says, and this is from the day we turned on all the systems, how many kilowatt hours have we consumed here in the barn? And it's 1,247 kilowatt hours. That's for, that's for like a year, more that's than a, a year. year. Yeah, that's a year. However, we've produced 6,342 kilowatt hours in that year, giving us a net positive of 5,094 kilowatt hours uh, as of today, October 17th, 2009. So, so your meter, your meter spins backwards. Absolutely. It spins backwards a lot. You know, basically any really sunny day, my meter's spinning backwards. And, and the grid, it, it's, it's your battery. The grid is my battery. In other words, what we do is we put the energy out on the grid when we're making excess, and when we're not uh, making excess and we're consuming more than we make, we draw from the grid. There's some information technology at work here to make right. everything play well together. Exactly. But by and large, this is, this is low tech. This isn't high tech. And that's what we tried to do. We were aiming for the state of the shelf, not the state of the art. Uh Our real goal in building this was not to build something that would be Buck Rogers, high tech, something you need a degree in astrophysics to run. This was something where anybody could have a house like this. Putting clean electrons back into the grid is also part of Dr. Collins's plan to make the house truly carbon neutral. He kept tabs on the CO2 emissions from construction. Even using local wood and keeping the house small, just 30 by 24 feet, he still put 500 metric tons of CO2 into the atmosphere. Collins calls that his house's carbon debt, and he can only pay it off if the house lasts. Everything in the barn is designed to last 200 years, except me. (laughs) I'm not going to. I'm not going to last 200 years, which means I've got to build something not just for me. I've got to build it for all those generations after me who will come to use it and have to feel that it is functional, but they also have to feel that it's beautiful. So aesthetics matter. If it's going to be green, it's going to be good looking, too. Absolutely. Because, in fact, ugly houses get smashed down. 
So what we need to do is we need to make a space which is uh, beautiful so that people will take the energy to adapt it to their needs. We are then offsetting the carbon that we put into the atmosphere to build it. You're paying back your carbon debt little by little. Absolutely, little by little. And just to give you some numbers, 5,000. Well, if you do the math, those 5,000 kilowatt hours equate to about 5 metric tons of carbon dioxide. Five tons down, 495 to go. 495 to go, right? So we've only got 99 more years to go, and we'll have paid off our debt. We're already planning the party. <laughs> well, uh, Dr. Keith Collins, thank, thanks very much. It's a, it's a great pleasure. It was great to see you. Thanks for coming by. So it sounds like a nice place, Jeff, but uh, what would it cost? Well, a house like this one with the solar system would be about $220,000. Dr. Collins says that's roughly the same as the cost of normal construction if you average the cost over the life of a 30-year mortgage. Because remember, he's probably never going to have to pay another power or heat bill. But the upfront cost is still higher. Mm-hmm. The, the upfront cost is the barrier. And that barrier is what folks working on the property-assessed clean energy or PACE concept hope to break down. It's a new financing program using tax-free bonds that helps homeowners make energy efficiency improvements without having to write a big check up front. Cisco DeVries says this approach has the potential to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide released into the atmosphere by up to 4 to 5 percent. Mr. DeVries is president of the company Renewable Funding, which created the concept of property-assessed clean energy, and he joins us now. Cisco DeVries, welcome to Living on Earth. Hello, Steve. It's great to be with you. So how does this new financing program work? This new program, which started in Berkeley, is designed to take a type of municipal financing that cities have been using for over a century and apply it to allowing property owners to make these energy efficiency and solar improvements. What it allows a property owner to do is install an energy efficiency retrofit or a solar system and then pay for the cost over 10 or 20 years as an individual voluntary surcharge on their property tax bill. So now we get rid of that big upfront cost and allow property owners to pay for the improvement, much like a utility bill, over months and years. So an important point to make is that the cost stays with the property and not with the individual, correct? And that's one of the the real uh, pieces of magic here. An average homeowner in, in the United States moves every five to seven years these days. And that's simply not long enough to recoup the benefits of making one of these deep improvements to your home. So under this new program... A property owner who makes the improvement and then moves, the new owner just comes in and picks up paying for the improvement where the property owner left off. The property tax surcharge just transfers automatically between owners, much like your utility bill just transfers to the next owner when the new owner moves in. Now, not everyone who wants to be more energy efficient owns a home. So what can this program do for renovating buildings like, uh, you know, multifamily rental units? This has been a tricky wicket for a long time. In most cases, a renter of an apartment is paying the utility bill, but it's the property owner that would have to put out the money in order to make these improvements and reduce the bills. It's called a split incentive. The first way that this program really helps is it allows property owners who have things like central heating or central water heating to use this property-assessed clean energy model to uh, make these improvements to reduce their energy costs for the parts of the bills that they're paying. So that's a direct benefit to the property owner. But in addition, what we're finding is that property owners in some cases are talking to the renters and saying, hey, let's do this together. We'll increase the rent a little bit, and you will be able to reduce your utility bill a little bit, and we'll share in these savings. Now, where do the municipalities, the cities and towns, get the money to do this? 
Uh, Steve, that's a great question. One of the most important components of this program is that it is not a cost to a city. All the city does is enable the property owners to have a surcharge on their property tax bill and then issues a bond, and that bond is then repaid through the property taxes. If there's ever a problem in the repayment of property taxes, it's just the bond owners who are affected. The city itself isn't responsible. The only security then for that bond, for the repayment, is the property tax. And that means the cities can go ahead and and help this program get started, can make it a service to their communities, but they're not taking on the risk and not having to put the money up themselves. And that's a real benefit right now because there's not a lot of governments out there that have extra money running around. What's the catch here? You know, selling bonds at this time of the economy would be kind of difficult for one thing. What we're seeing today is the bond markets are getting better for bonds that are well-received, that look very secure. So our job in this program as it gets started is to make sure that these bonds are secure, that the programs work well, that the property owners who are choosing to participate are doing so with a great deal of information and making good choices to receive real energy savings. If we do those things, then these bonds should be very secure and they should be well-received on the markets. So... Cisco, what gets you excited about this? We've known for decades that you can save money, that most property owners can save money on energy efficiency in their homes, but we haven't been able to unlock that door. And here today we have this confluence of events. We have the priority around climate change. We have the fact that families are looking for ways to save money, especially in this difficult economic time, and we're trying to put people back to work. And that's led to a real focus on on solving this energy efficiency financing issue. The thing that really gets me excited is we have the opportunity with this program and some of the leadership and and other programs we see coming down the pipe to help transform the built environment, to really transform the way that that people use energy, that they think of energy, and to reduce the amount of energy and greenhouse gas emissions coming from our homes and businesses. How big could this be, Cisco? The University of California, Berkeley, did a study looking at these programs, and they said, boy, if this really starts to catch on nationwide, it could be a $280 billion financing program in not too long. And then we'd be talking about reducing uh, greenhouse gas emissions to the tune of 1.1 or or more gigatons. And at net no cost, really, to anybody. Property owners want to do the right thing, but they also need to save money. This is not a time to be putting a lot of extra money out the door if you can avoid it. And I think what we've got here is is an opportunity for people to make the retrofits, to reduce their energy costs, and to put some extra money in their pocketbooks at the end of the the month. Uh, And that certainly is a win-win. Cisco DeVries is president of the company Renewable Funding, the creators of the PACE concept, the Property Assessed Clean Energy Program. Thank you so much for taking this time. It was my pleasure to be part of this. Thank you, Steve. Now, the PACE program to fund renewable power and other green improvements is one approach, and there are others focusing mostly on low-income households. The private nonprofit development group Enterprise plans to come up with $4 billion in the next five years to retrofit or develop 75,000 green homes, partly by tapping into the growing market in carbon offsets. Dana Borland, the vice president for Enterprise Green Communities, says they try to make low-income housing more energy efficient because the people who live there get hit the hardest by utility costs. It's astounding, really, when you look at it. There was a study of low-income households to look at what they were paying for their utility costs, and they're paying at least four times more than a moderate-income household is just for energy, which means a trade-off. So they're much more likely to skip their medical visits or even skip eating for a day just to keep the lights on or keep the air conditioning going. 
Now, not all of the projects that you're talking about are just about improving energy efficiency. It's, this is a broader definition of green. Tell me about this project you have in Seattle. So there's one terrific development called High Point. It's a large redevelopment of public housing on the west side of Seattle. There were 60 homes built to a specific standard to really make those homes easier to breathe in. Mostly because they, they don't have carpet, which really does attract sort of dirt and, and pollutants in it, and also installed filter systems for the whole house. So you're getting the right amount of fresh air into the home and taking the stale air out. So the children that moved in had asthma. That was part of the requirement of putting the families in those specific homes. Within a one-year time frame, those children are experiencing a 60% increase in the number of days that they don't have symptoms related to asthma. Now, how do you pay for all of this stuff? Tell me about this, uh, what sounds to me like a very clever idea, to use this whole notion of carbon offsets to help offset these costs. Enterprise realized that if you met the Green Communities criteria, you'd be reducing carbon emissions by about two tons. So we decided to figure out how to operate within the voluntary carbon market to buy offsets from developers of green communities projects that would allow them to pay for those energy efficiency measures that would result in the lower carbon emissions. Now, what has to happen to make that happen? This is part of some legislation? Right now is just operating. So you, Jeff... Oh, the voluntary could... market is happening. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Um, it is part of the climate bill to think about a cap-and-trade system. That cap-and-trade system could generate as much as 50 to even $300 billion. So if this goes large scale, then uh, some industry looking to offset its uh, carbon pollution could basically buy a stake in one of your greenhouses. Exactly. That's our goal, is to really link affordable housing into the green economy. You know, uh, we are, of course, in this economic crisis, which had, uh, you know, its start in the housing crisis and the foreclosure crisis. How's that affecting the effort to green housing? It's obviously not a good uh, situation, but we are presented now with a tremendous opportunity to go into those homes and, and rehab them and do things, you know, on a moderate level, but will have a tremendous impact for then the new owner. And what we're seeing is there is a slight correlation emerging between homes where the owners could not afford their utility bills coupled with their rising mortgage costs just became a disaster. We forget, I think, sometimes that housing costs, it's not just your upfront rent payment or your mortgage payment. It is the operations and maintenance. And that we've seen take a huge spike in terms of the cost for energy, for electricity and for water. You know, part of what I find interesting as you, as you lay this stuff out is it's not just a green in an environmental sense. This is green in a dollars and cents sense. This, this is bottom line kind of thinking. Jeff, exactly. This is just good business sense. The other part of that, though, is what we're seeing in terms of the engagement in this movement that you and I both live somewhere. And hopefully most of us do have a home that we have control over or an apartment where we can actually take small steps or larger steps and play a, a large role in the global situation that we're facing in terms of climate change. I don't know why this just occurred to me, but the root of the word ecology, eco, means house. It does. <laughs> it does. Yes. Home sweet home. Home sweet home. <laughs> Dana Borland is uh, vice president for Enterprise Green Communities. Thanks for visiting. Thank you. 
Well, as we heard, climate change legislation could have a big impact on green housing. Both the U.S. Senate and President Obama are now turning their attention to that legislation, and so will we on our next program. For a preview, go to our website, LOE.org. Coming up, how green water power might be very bad for biodiversity. Development is important to the welfare of our people. Environment is also important to the welfare of our people. I don't think there is anywhere on Earth where you have the mixture of high biodiversity, yet high threat. Hydropower on the Mekong. Stay with us on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. In the United States, Canada, and Europe, some old hydroelectric dams are being torn down rejected as environmentally destructive or too expensive to repair or replace. But that's not the case in parts of the developing world, including Southeast Asia. There, dams are being built along the biologically rich Mekong River and its tributaries. In just one small country, Laos, seven large dams are currently under construction, and over 50 more are on the drawing board. As Murray Stuckey reports, some see this as a major threat to biodiversity. At a bustling food market on the outskirts of Vientiane, the capital of Laos, vendors, many of them women and children, sit behind tables topped with umbrellas. There are piles of cabbage, bright red chilies in plastic bowls, and tiny speckled eggs stacked in cardboard cartons. Then there are the real delicacies, from furry rodents to deep-fried insects. This is uh, a fine local Lao fare. Tastes good too, actually. Um, I do recommend um, the crickets. That's Stuart Chapman of the World Wildlife Fund. He says markets like this one offer a tremendous variety of food and some amazing scientific discoveries. Of course, when you have people living in close proximity to the forest, um, these people come across the rare, the endangered, the unusual. And uh, in very many cases, they are considered to be um, food and they end up in markets such as this. Chapman says scientists have been discovering an average of two new species every week for the last 10 years in and along Southeast Asia's Mekong River. Among them, a bright pink millipede that produces cyanide in defense, a rat thought to be extinct for 11 million years, and a spider the size of a dinner plate. And Mekong should now be synonymous with Amazon, with Borneo, with Congo. It conjures up images of wild places, and and I tell you, it doesn't get much wilder than this. Chapman says that wildness and the Mekong's unique biodiversity are at risk. Victims of hunting, deforestation, and development, specifically hydroelectric dams. The Laos-Mekong is well-suited for hydropower, and officials here want Laos to become what they call the battery of Southeast Asia earning billions by building dams and selling the electricity they produce to neighboring countries. 
In central Laos, a road grader levels a two-lane highway near a major tributary of the Mekong River. It's part of the massive one-and-a-quarter-billion-dollar Nam Tum Tu dam project that's expected to generate 1,070 megawatts by the end of the year. Aidan Glendinning represents the private company building the dam with funding from international shareholders and loans from the Asian Development Bank and the World Bank. Glendinning says revenue from the project will be used by the government to develop the country and reduce poverty. 95% of the electricity will be sold to Thailand at a, at a pre-arranged rate as a guaranteed customer, so it provides financial security for the government. They're going to get $2 billion in royalties from the dam over the next 25 years. And after that, then they own the whole lot. 19 villages have been flooded to create a 174-square-mile reservoir for the dam. More than 6,000 people had to move. Their rice fields and riverbank gardens flooded. Their fisheries lost. Still, Nam Tum Tu is meant to be a model for how to minimize environmental damage and lift the country out of poverty. The Minister of Foreign Affairs here several years ago told diplomats and aid workers that the Lao people did not want to live in a museum that other people could visit and enjoy. They wanted to have better lives. They wanted refrigerators and cars and education for their children. And you can't begrudge them that. The power company built 17 new villages for people whose homes and fields were flooded. These villages have new schools, roads, medical clinics, and improved water supplies. Each family was given a new house, complete with a latrine and electricity. Few residents would talk on tape, but many say they're happy with the houses and roads. But these improved living conditions haven't reduced their worries about how to make a living. The fishing is okay, says this fisherman, but there aren't enough buyers for his fish. Most Laotians are poor, desperate for jobs and a better economy, says Stephen Lintner, a technical advisor for the World Bank. He says this dam will help. Nam Tun Tu is premised on the principle that it is a way for the government to generate revenues that can be applied to poverty reduction and to better environmental management. If used properly, that revenue can make a major contribution to the uh, development futures of the country. Littner says dams help in another way. They can be used to fight the ravages of climate change. What's happening is with climate change, you're having less predictability of the amount of rainfall you'll have so that dams are being increasingly used to store water to allow for better regulation. The Mekong region has an opportunity to leapfrog the destructive dam development that we've seen in other regions of the world and instead jump straight into a renewable energy future, into a sustainable energy future. There's far better technologies now for generating electricity, which make dams last century's technology. That's Carl Middleton of International Rivers, an advocacy organization opposed to hydroelectric dams. Instead of building dams, Middleton wants Western governments to assist Laos in developing energy alternatives, such as solar and wind. In Laos, the Mekong River supports a fishery that's estimated at $50 million a year. Middleton says dams will permanently damage the river, threatening Laotians' food security and livelihoods water to irrigate their crops, and even transportation. 
Middleton says fishermen are often the first to feel the negative effects of dams, which can block migrations of many fish species and change the natural ebb and flow of the Mekong River. The biodiversity is adapted to the shape of the Mekong River's flood pulse between extreme high during the rainy season and a relative low during the dry season. And it's this shape, like this characteristic, that makes the ecosystem itself so productive. By building dams, you're changing the shape of this hydrograph. It will change the biodiversity of the region. A long-tail boat heads to what's called the Sipandon, or 4,000 Islands, in southern Laos near the Cambodian border. These waters are home to one of the most magical species on Earth, the Irrawaddy dolphins. We stop within sight of the dolphin feeding grounds. Suddenly, a gray fin slices the water. In a flash, there's another. Dolphins, yeah. Oh, they're beautiful. There are fewer than 80 Irrawaddy dolphins left in the Mekong, and their numbers are dwindling rapidly. A recent World Wildlife Fund report points to DDT, PCBs, and mercury pollution. The government of Laos has accepted a proposal from a Malaysian company to build an enormous hydropower dam in the area where the dolphins come to feed. Opponents say the dam at Sipandon would devastate the remaining dolphins and affect fish catches dramatically. The World Wildlife Fund's Chapman says areas like Sipandon should be avoided, but he supports allowing some dams in less sensitive places and wants to be sure people are provided with a way to make a living. Yes, development is important to the welfare of our people. Environment is also important to the welfare of our people. Um, I don't think there is anywhere on Earth where you have the mixture of high biodiversity yet high threat. Anne says Chapman that threat is not just in Laos. The Mekong River is more than 3,000 miles long and runs through six countries. Environmental groups have called for a multi-country agreement to preserve the river and its ecosystem. But so far, countries on the Mekong are still proposing and building new dams as a way to meet the region's need for financial capital and for energy. For Living on Earth, I'm Mary Stuckey in Sipandon, Laos. For photographs, go to our website. LOE.org. Just ahead, some monster math. But first, this note on emerging science from Nirja Parekh. Maple is already famous for its deliciously sweet syrup, but new technology can make the trees a sweet spot for energy, too. Research from the University of Washington shows big-leaf maples can run an electrical circuit. The scientists found that the trees can produce a stable voltage of up to a few hundred millivolts if they stick one electrode into the tree and one electrode into the soil. This process sounds similar to popular kids' science fair experiments, like the potato or lemon battery. These generate an electrical current through a chemical reaction that moves electrons between electrodes from two different metals. Tree power uses a different mechanism with electrodes of the same metal, and most importantly, it relies on a device called a boost converter. This tiny, ingenious, custom-built gadget stores the tree's minuscule voltage and concentrates it into a larger, usable output. But don't run out to your backyard and try to plug in your iPod. 
The TreePower can't support regular electronics, but it can run low-power sensors. These could be engineered to monitor environmental conditions and detect forest fires in the area. Researchers say they are not certain where the voltage comes from, but say it might prove useful if it can be harnessed to check on the overall health of the tree. That's necessary, as climate change impacts the places where the maple tree thrives. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Nirja Parekh. We recently came across an alarming paper in the scientific journal Infectious Disease Modeling Research Progress. A team of mathematicians from Canada modeled the potential outbreak of a new disease and found, quoting here, an outbreak is likely to be disastrous unless extremely aggressive tactics are employed. It's imperative that those infected are dealt with quickly or else we are all in a great deal of trouble, end quote. Well, that got our attention, so we called up one of the paper's authors, Philip Munns at Carleton University in Ottawa. So, Philip Munns, what exactly is this infection that we're talking about? Uh, Sadly, this infection is a zombie outbreak. (laughs) Zombies, you said? Zombies, yes. Okay, so this is a serious mathematical model based on a fictitious horror movie scenario. Do I understand this? This is some heavy math, some realistic math, dealing with the fictional zombie disease. First off, uh, what kind of zombies are we talking about here? Because, you know, as any uh, fan of zombie movies would know, not all zombies are the same. What zombies are yours like? Oh, no, yeah, you're preaching to the choir when you talk about all the different types of zombies. The zombies that we cover are the ones that you see in the 1968 movie uh, Night of the Living Dead, which was the sort of first real pop culture zombie flick. The dead who live on living flesh. Night of the Living Dead. A classical approach, if you will, to zombies. Yes, the classical approach. Okay. So a zombie enters your town... What happens? How does the model play out? So, yes, our ideas were sort of taken out of movies where, um, like in Shaun of the Dead, Mm -hmm. people don't realize why someone attacked them, and that someone actually ends up being a zombie. Oh, my God. She's so drunk. (laughs) And then before people actually start realizing what's happening, there's already quite a large number of zombies around in the city. Hmm. Okay, what might we do about it? Um, Could we quarantine them? Well, uh, that's actually one of the things that we look at in the the paper. We thought that the quarantine would be the fastest thing that you could coordinate on such a short notice. The problem was, was that with zombies, you can tell that they're zombies. With people who are infected, you can't so much tell if they've been infected by a zombie, if they're not a zombie yet. Ah, so there's there's, a bit of there's a, some latency between infection and full-blown zombieism. Yes. Ah. Um, and, and again, stuff that you see in movies where the boyfriend gets bit and he's like, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. But then halfway through the movie, they've got the dramatic interlude where the girlfriend has to take out her boyfriend. <laughs> happens all the time. Yeah, you know, so there is it's not an instantaneous change from from a human 
to turning into a zombie. So if you can't successfully quarantine everyone, if just a few escape the quarantine, the quarantine doesn't work according to your model. Is that right? Exactly. The quarantine Uh doesn't work. And it's very hard to find these people who are infected, but not yet zombies. Okay. So quarantine is out. Doesn't work. Scientists are hard at work to find out what this is about. They come up with a cure. Is that an option? Yeah. um, Say the quarantine at least was a little bit helpful, and they did come up with a cure. Uh, What possibilities might the cure hold? So our cure changes a zombie back to a human pretty much right away. But then once the person is human again, they're susceptible to turning back into a zombie. Oh, so it's not a vaccine. So it's it's not a vaccine. Okay. Mm -hmm. Even so, we thought, well, let's give it a try. Let's see what happens with the cure. And we are actually able to come up with a bit of a state where if we had enough resources, there's only about 10% human at any one time, and the rest of the people in the city have turned into zombies. That's pretty grim. The cure is not sounding like a great option here. So what is the ultimate solution here? I'm imagining the scene in the movie where the uh, the scientist, possibly played by Jeff Goldblum, goes to the authorities and says, here's what we have to do. Uh, the uh, the assistant to Jeff Goldblum would be me um, ah, in that movie. Okay. <laughs> uh, actually, the scientist would say, well, the, the only chance we have is lethal force. Hmm. <laughs> so lock and load, aim for the head. That's the, that's the ultimate recommendation here. Yeah, okay. Chief, uh, if I were surrounded by six or eight of these things, would I stand a chance with them? Well, there's no problem. If you had a gun, shoot them in the head. That's a sure way to kill them. If you don't, get yourself a club or a torch. Beat them or burn them. They go up pretty easy. So we thought, okay, well, let's see what we could do to model that using math that actually gave proof to the fact that, yeah, at the end of those movies when the army comes in and takes out, wipes out a whole bunch of zombies at a time, that's actually a feasible solution. Mm. As a mathematician, does this add to your enjoyment of zombie movies to go to one, watch it and say, yep, that's the way it would happen? <laughs> uh I do that with pretty much all the movies, uh, not just zombie movies. You it's do? Like, well, could the Borg take over the human race? Uh, <laughs> what, what about romantic comedies? Do you apply uh, your well, mathematic modeling to rom-coms? Those ones, those ones, actually, there is no logic in those. So. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> <laughs> Philip Munz's paper is called When Zombies Attack, Mathematical Modeling of an Outbreak of Zombie Infection. Great fun talking with you. Well, thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, it sounds like you got a big brain. My advice, be careful out there. Yeah, they want me for my brain. <laughs> Those zombies. Who dat then they say? Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Jesse Martin, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Shreese Kandaraja, and Mitra Taj. With help from Sarah Calkins, Marilyn Gavoni, and Sammy Souza. Our interns are Quincy Campbell and Nirja Parekh. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies.
Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live a healthy, productive life. Information at gatesfoundation.org. And PaxWorld Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. PaxWorld for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI Public Radio International.